Well, Father, we come before you just grateful that we can come before this um, assembly of your saints and listen to your word. Father, we thank you for the miracle of revelation, how thousands of years ago your Holy Spirit moved through uh, certain people to write down exactly what you want to have said. We thank you that the words of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, have been recorded for us to consider and reflect. We thank you for your Spirit who works in the hearts and the minds of all of us to understand uh, its meaning. And I pray that you will just do a work in us as we talk about the focus of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Sally and Joanne have gotten to know each other over the years on account of their kids' friendship uh, with each other. They all seem to be at the same activities, 4-H, soccer, you name it. And so Sally uh, has gotten, into, um, gotten to know Joanne really well, and Joanne's not a believer, and, and Sally's trying to find the right angle to invite Joanne and her family to church. When all of a sudden, the, the Wednesday night children's program has given her a wonderful opening. It's bring a friend night. And so Sally's kids invite their friends to the bring a friend night, and and their friends are really excited about it. And so Sally talks to Joanne and kind of coordinates everything so that she knows where to be and when. And so Joanne sh uh, shows up on the Wednesday night activity and she checks in the older kids. And the older kids are absorbed into the group on account of their friendship with the friends they already had. And then she takes her youngest one to the preschool program. And it's there when she finds out that the preschool program is actually not open to non-members. Uh, the director says, on account of the fact that we have limited resources and space, we confine this ministry exclusively to members of the church. Well, Joanne explains that she was invited to come here by a friend. They drove in from out of town. I mean, is there any way that you can make an exception in this case, and she gets the, well, rules are rules, I'm sorry. And so Joanna walks out you know, with her preschooler, who's pretty sad that he drove all this way and can't play with his friends. So what do you think about that? It's kind of a lost opportunity, isn't it? I mean, it's bring a friend night. The whole purpose of bringing a friend night is to bring who into the church, right? Unchurched kids, so that they could come and check it out and hopefully stick around. The whole purpose of that program in many ways is evangelism and, and reaching out to people. You have, a, you have the whole idea that it's hospitality, a chance to welcome people into the fold, right? It, it, it's a lost opportunity. It's, there, there's a saying, don't miss the forest for the trees, where you can be so focused on these rules and these procedures and these trees that you miss the entirety of the forest. You, you really miss the big picture. And 
And I think we can often understand this, right? Like a lot of times, rules are a source of comfort. Having rules in children's ministry is a good thing, right? That way, you know, a little kid won't go in and bite and devour, literally, other children. Right? You have to have standards. So obviously, you don't want to be anti-rules. You want to make this an inviting and hospitable place by making sure that the kids are on the same page. But sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees. And that's something that we, that we find in Luke chapter 6, where we see a fixation on the forest. I'm sorry, a fixation on the trees. And we'll see if we can pick out what is the tree that they're focused upon. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, previously... Jesus teaches about the old and the new wineskins. Remember, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin, otherwise what will happen? It'll burst and you lose the wine and the wineskin. The, the rituals and the revelation need to match. And now he's taking that, that thought and he's extending the logic somewhat to the Sabbath day. Now, if there was something to be passionate about in Judaism, it was the Sabbath. Right? Many religions had sacred places like temples that might have sacred objects like an actual idol. Uh, the Jews believed in sacred time, that there was one day a week that from creation onward was set apart by God to be a day of rest. You find it in Genesis, it's reaffirmed in the uh, Ten Commandments, right? You shall not work on the Sabbath. It is a dedicated day, dedicated to God. It looks back on the time when God said about creation, it is good before the curse. It was to create a longing for the future, right? It was a day of rest. It was a time to be holy. And as such, they looked at the command not to work on the Sabbath, and they'd ask the logical question, well, we know what the Sabbath is, right? What's work? How do we guard the Sabbath to make sure it is honored? One of the things that would distinguish everybody, uh, the Jews from everybody else, 
was they did not work on the Sabbath. People would walk into Jerusalem from out of town and realize, why is nothing open? It's the Sabbath. Well, what's the Sabbath? And lead to an explanation. It was, it was a mark of corporate identity and solidarity. And yet they were so focused on the Sabbath that they missed the larger point. You see, often we can be passionate about one thing. We can be fixated on the, on the trees, right? And we can miss the forest. You can be fixated on, on justice and the need to relieve suffering in the here and now that you might neglect evangelism. Or you can neglect, evangel- you can neglect justice and current suffering because you're so fixated on evangelism. Uh, I think we emerged from a pandemic, and there are a lot of fixations, weren't there? Take the vaccine or, or don't take the vaccine, right? And that often became a, a cause of accusation. Somebody who really loves people and has a gift of compassion can silently judge those people who have more of a ministry of exhortation and confrontation. Somebody who is really into theology can see someone who doesn't really have a knack for that as, as, as shallow. Or somebody who believes in more of the application and devotional application of Scripture can judge somebody who is living in an ivory tower, right? You can be fixated on one thing, and you can miss the forest. And that's a temptation that is common to all of us here. So as we look at the Pharisees, and we look at their fixation on what it means to work on the Sabbath, it's a cautionary tale to make sure that we don't do the same thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus pushes back on their tree fixation, how he shows them that you cannot miss the forest, and then take some lessons from this to apply to our own life. And so we're going to see the oppression of the law, the exception to the law, the authority over the law, and the application of the law. So let's look at the first point, the oppression of the law. And this is interesting. They are using the law of the Sabbath to oppress other people. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So setting the stage, Jesus and his disciples are going through some grain fields. And as they do, his disciples pluck heads of grain, kind of rub it to kind of free it of its husk, blow it away, and then they would pop the seeds in their mouth, right? Obviously, they were hungry. They were eating. And what's interesting is this is not stealing. The law provided a means where you're not supposed to harvest all of your fields. You might leave the corners so that the poor could go ahead and, and glean for themselves. So not using tools, not using power equipment. They're not harvesting it to sell it to the market. They're using it to satisfy a genuine need, and that's, that's hunger. However, the, the Pharisees are watching Jesus at this point, and they cry foul. You see, they had an understanding of what it meant to work on the Sabbath. There were 39 rules that you had to put in place. Depending on the rabbi, there might be more. And they look at the, and they look at the disciples and say they are in violation of the law. They are working. Verse 2, but some of the Pharisees Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, what they did was there's this principle of do not work on the Sabbath. 
And if you were to look at Jesus' life, he did not do carpentry on the Sabbath, right? He would observe the Sabbath. He was not a lawbreaker. But what they were saying is plucking heads of wheat or grain or corn, rubbing them, and then popping them into your mouth, that's work. That is a violation of this greater principle of the law. They're doing something I call canonizing the application, where you take an application of a principle of Scripture and you put it on the same level as the principle itself. Let me give you a true life story that helps explain this. At my old church, really, that's where all the illustrations come from. I'm not going to indict anyone here. <laughs> At my old church, I, I was part of a, a newcomer team. And so we'd welcome in the newcomers. We'd have lunch with them. And I, I remember sitting down with a, with a couple and getting to know them over Subway catered sandwiches. And this lady asked me, what do you guys believe about homeschooling? And I said, well, I think homeschooling is a great option. Uh, so is Christian school, and, and so is public school. You know, at our church, we take a, a neutral approach to that, and we realize that some parents have um, certain needs that might make this the better choice versus this. And so really, it's up to the parents, right? Just standard response is what we teach here. But then she quoted Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then she asks, are all public school teachers saved? No. Then how can you, with a clear conscience, tell someone that it's okay for their children to sit in the seat of scoffers? Now, Right there, I just changed back to Jesus. I didn't see it before, but I guess homeschooling is in there, right? When you really look at the principle, what is it? Don't put yourself in a position and join in the fellowship of scoffers. Have you guys ever been trained by somebody at work? Did he ask them before they trained you on how to use this machine? Excuse me, are you a Christian? When they show you how to use this software, are you a believer? It's an impossible standard. This is not talking about whether or not you can put your kids in public school. That might be an application. I mean, if, if you are in a school district where there is a radical anti-God agenda, Malcolm X Middle School in Berkeley, California might be an example. Maybe this would, principle would apply, but to universalize it is to canonize the application. She was so passionate about homeschooling and this issue that she saw everything through that prism and missed the larger point of the text. You see, that is a, something that the Pharisees did. They were so passionate about the Sabbath and protecting the Sabbath and defining work on the Sabbath that eating to satisfy your, your hunger was seen as a violation. And they're basically saying, you know what, Jesus? To honor the Sabbath... Your disciples need to go without food today. They need to starve. So Jesus pushes back by showing an exception to the law. 
And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So Jesus asked a counter question, and he points to David. Now, David would be on the Mount Rushmore of ancient Israel. If you were to travel to a Washington, D.C. equivalent, right, instead of having the Washington Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial, you might have the Moses Memorial and the, the David Memorial, right? They love David. David was the king. He was the Messiah. They look forward to a future son of David to reign on the throne of Israel. David was the one who basically wrote the Psalter for Israel. When you sang songs, David was the author. David had his sins. They all knew it, but everybody respected David. And then he points to an interesting chapter in David's life. David was anointed king by Samuel. And Samuel made it very clear to Saul, the former king, that God is actually rejecting you. You reject me, God's going to reject you and your sons. Saul did not like that. And Saul seeks to hunt David down. David is running for his life. He is out of provisions. He and his men loyal to him. And he happens upon the tabernacle and Ahimelech, who is the priest presiding over it. And, and he asks Ahimelech, do you have any food for us to eat? We just need five loaves. And Ahimelech says, we don't have any bread except for the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence is basically 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which was baked and then put in the tabernacle for a week. And at the end of the week, the priest would go in, take it out, and go ahead and eat it. So in this case, Ahimelech, seeing that David, God's anointed, is starving, decides that he wants to give him the bread. And so David eats the bread. Now what he is doing here is making an argument that sometimes hunger, preventing suffering, can contour or nuance your understanding of the law. How can you hold to what you're saying so dogmatically when David did this and the scriptures don't judge him for it? They seem to be okay with it. Why are you so focused on this tree when the greater forest is that the law is not meant to oppress, but to bless God's people, especially when they're faithful, especially when they're obedient? Right? There is a tendency to be so fixated on something that you kind of lose the force through the trees. Like, like you read a book on being gospel-centered, that the gospel is what saves you, what sustains you, what should drive you. And so you need to live your life in a gospel-centered way. Hard to argue with that, right? You need to forgive other people because... The gospel is about forgiveness. You give grace to other people because God gave you grace. It's, you don't want to argue with that, but, but then you read a book on grace-based parenting, about how you need to apply the gospel to parenting. And then your son decides 
to experiment with fire outside the fireplace in your living room and destroys a lot of carpet. And you remember this book, Gospel-Based Parenting, you know, don't kill your son, that's sin. And so you sit down with little Johnny and say, Johnny, what you experienced was a close brush with fire. The fires of hell are worse than that fire. But God gives you grace. And he is willing to absorb that wrath on himself so that you won't have to. Johnny, somebody has to pay for this. And it's Jesus on the cross. And as far as this burning carpet, it's going to be me. Johnny, I want you to take this switch and I want you to spank me instead. And Johnny's like, all right. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? You're going to get a lot of spankings because it's grace-based. But you know, there's, a, there's another passage in Scripture that might be helpful here. It's found in Proverbs 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. I had a chance to talk to um, a theologian about this grace-based parenting concept, and he said, you know what kids need these days is a nice, firm spanking. I'm like, all right. <laughs> That's much better than letting my kids spank me in the name of the gospel, right? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you can just take this one thing, which is a great and glorious truth, but if you apply it too far... You become blind to the forest of the rest of the teachings about parenting. <clears throat> and you can sub that out with other things, but to be so fixated on it, you lose the nuance, you lose the forest, you lose the bigger picture that's given to you by Scripture. I mean, if you're a good scientist and you find you have a hypothesis, right? Hypothesis. If one fact disproves it, what do you do with the hypothesis? You either discard it or you nuance it. If there's a passage of scripture, like Jesus bringing up David and the showbread, that causes you to go, you know what, I never really thought about that. You think, maybe I ought to choose a different conclusion. And then Jesus brings it home, where he talks about his authority over the law. Verse 5, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? This is the most important sentence in this, in this narrative. Right? Son of Man is used primarily in two places in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, uh, God refers to Ezekiel as a son of man. You are going to go, son of man, and teach truths that nobody wants to hear, and you're going to suffer to do it, right? There's a suffering element to the son of man. But the son of man is also used in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel, in a vision, says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He's an apocalyptic figure who will show up and judge the world. Now, he used this a few passages earlier when he healed the paralytic. Remember, he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And everyone is like, like all aghast, you know, clutching the pearls. Who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? And he says, what's easier? To say, rise up and walk, or to forgive his sins, and then to prove the point, so that you may know 
that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk, right there. He has the power as the judge, right? He's going to come back to grant clemency. And here he's saying, as the judge, the Son of Man, he has the power to arbitrate the law, to interpret the law. Right, we understand this in our legal system. You have statutory law and you have case law. Statutory law is what is passed down and then it's often up to the judges to interpret it. He pointed to the situation of David and said that needs to contour your law. What do you do with that case law? And then he says, I tell you what, I am the judge. I'm going to come back to judge and I will determine who is and who is not in violation of the Sabbath and that my disciples are not in violation of the Sabbath. I'm the one who makes the call. Case closed. Drop the mic. That ends. Until they find another occasion, right? They're beaten down but not persuaded. So you see the application of the law come out in the next passage, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. That was a common practice for him on the Sabbath. And in the synagogue was a man with a withered hand. Uh, commentators speculate that he had some sort of paralysis that caused some serious atrophy so he couldn't use his hand. And this was his right hand, his dominant hand. Now, if you're a day laborer, being one-handed was a real liability. One tradition actually speculates that this man was a stonemason, right? That'd be a difficult job to do with one hand. And so this man has suffered much. He's a step away from begging. He, there's no real use for him in society, but the Pharisees find a use for him. They can use him to accuse Jesus. And so they're waiting almost like a trap. It's like, is Jesus going to notice this guy with a withered hand? Is he going to do something about it? And Jesus reads the room. He knows their thoughts. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So the man walked forward. Everyone sees the withered hand. And then Jesus asked his critics this question. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? He is challenging their theology of the Sabbath. Now, they had some exceptions to Sabbath work. Priests could work on the Sabbath. Medical professionals could work on the Sabbath, provided that it would save a life. Now, the man with the withered hand, his life is not in danger. Jesus could wait till sundown and then heal him. There's nothing urgent about this. But then he, he says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And this is where it's helpful to think about the intent of the Sabbath. Remember when God created the world in six days, 
And on the seventh day, what was his assessment? It was good, right? That was the golden age. He was able to walk with his people. There was harmony and tranquility between the animal kingdom and humanity and humanity and their God. All was well. There was no curse. There was no thorns. There was no thistles. They're able to rest. Everything was taken care of. That was the golden age. So part of the Sabbath is to take one day a week to look back at that day and to remember the good old days. Remember how that is the way this world should be. Before we had sickness, before we had suffering, before we had conflict, before we had, had withered hands. That was the intention. The Sabbath was also a, a time of, of rejuvenation where not only do you think about that, but it's a time to rest. Like if you rolled your ankle, how do you heal that? Do you take a pill? Do you do surgery? What's the doctor going to tell you? Lay off of it, give it some rest. So there's a rejuvenating principle to this Sabbath. Is to think about how there used to be a time when there was no sin, to look forward to a time when all suffering will be put away with, withered hands will be no more. To be rejuvenated as you rest, to rest your body, to, to heal your body. That's the intent of the Sabbath. So it's okay to pluck grain on the Sabbath to rejuvenate your body. And it's okay for me to rejuvenate this hand. And then he goes on to say, And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. What a moment. He gives the interpretation that it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. It's okay to bless this man with a withered hand. And as, it's as if God says, amen, with the miracle. Now, you would think that the Pharisees would say, he's got a point there. <laughs> he just did a miracle to verify this. Can't really argue with that. But they were filled, verse 11, with fury and discussed one, with one another what they might do to Jesus. They take a dark turn. I mean, think about how ridiculous this is. Okay, let's say a guy is a prophecy hound. If you go to his house, he has a, a wall dedicated to his prophecy timeline. There's little you know, yarn lines here and here with newspaper clippings, and he's worked the whole thing out. Well, one night... A portal opens up in the sky, a bunch of angels stream to earth, and then a rider on a white horse makes his descent. And he says, obviously, that can't be Jesus, because Russia hasn't invaded Israel yet. <laughs> Hello? Right? At some point in time, you're like, the power of God is on display. It kind of drops the case. And yet, even with the power of God so evident in their midst, they're like, we need to do something about this Jesus. They take a dark turn. They plot to kill him because he is challenging the Sabbath, or at least their interpretation of it. I, I mean, 
when you really think about it, is the issue really the Sabbath? The issue is really their own righteousness and their self-righteousness and their ability to regulate what people can and cannot do. How dare Jesus take away that kind of power? They try to make it about a noble reason, but they have an ignoble heart. They refuse to hear and admit that they are wrong. They're so focused on this one tree of Sabbath observance that they miss the entire forest, that God is among them, that he's present among them. And as a result, their spiritual lives take a dark turn. I remember during my childhood, I, as you guys know, I lived in six different states before I graduated from, from high school. But I spent uh, the bulk of my childhood in, in Boise, Idaho. And while at Eustick Elementary School in the third grade, I befriended a, a classmate named Mark Tillman. Now, Mark was an only child who lived in my neighborhood, and so we'd get together and play and, and hang out and talk. And, and his mom was the most devoted Christian I ever met to that point in my life. Like, she would actually watch Trinity Broadcasting Network, CBN, uh, the Bakers, if you remember them, every single day. I think she actually put her hands on the TV screen to pray with them. But she was a legitimately joyful Christian, very serious in her commitment to the Lord. We had a lot of really good spiritual conversations. Now, eventually, Mark transferred to a Christian school, and then he transferred to a home school, and that's where I left him when I moved away. Well, many years later, during my time in college, my parents relocated back to Idaho um, about a year after I became a Christian. So my parents are living in a new place. I don't know any Christians, and I immediately think, who should I talk to? I need to reach out to the Tillmans. And I was excited because a lot has changed in my life. I'm also a born-again Christian, and I thought that would be a quick path to fellowship. And so uh, I call him up. He remembers me. We get together, I go visit them, and um, as I'm there, I I find out that his mom is a homeschool lobbyist and that his dad ran for the Idaho State Assembly, and he's a a state congressman advocating homeschool policy and homeschool laws. And then I asked them, so where do you guys go to church? Because I'm looking for a good church, and they kind of hemmed and hawed and and told me that that they're hit and miss but they haven't really gone to church anymore. And I was kind of stunned by that. And and you can see how this could happen, right? They were committed to homeschooling. The Bible says, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And they took that commandment seriously. They were focused on that tree to the point where their life purpose became advancing that cause in Idaho. They had fellowship with other homeschoolers. They spent time with other homeschoolers. And as they did that, their hearts drifted away from the church. Really, while they'd say they're Christians, they were decidedly lukewarm. Right? They, They missed the forest through the trees. You see, you can take a good thing, even a good thing like the Sabbath, 
and the Sabbath is good and wonderful. And Jesus would agree with that. Ultimately, we'll talk about in a later sermon, he is the point of the Sabbath. But you could take something like that and, and become so fixated on it that you just miss everything else. That passion, that conviction, that teaching, that doctrine, that tree fixation can dominate your entire life. So you see everything through that prism. So how do you know if you're, if you're doing that? Well, here's three questions to ask yourself. Number one, do you find your passion in every passage of Scripture? Do you find your passion in every passage of Scripture? You discover the sovereignty of God and salvation. You never understood that, that it was God who initiated and completed your salvation, that you were elect and now that you have this understanding, you see it everywhere. You're reading in your quiet times in Leviticus, and you notice that there's dietary laws, and that God elects some food and not others. Well, there you go. I knew it. It's there. It's the topic that you talk about. You see it all over the place, even when it's not there. Do you find your passion in every passage of Scripture? And if it's not there, do you kind of Put it in there. Do you dismiss counselors who don't hold your view? My parents told me I need to calm down about homeschooling. What do they know? They sent me to public school. My dad's asking me about internet accountability and everything. What does he know? He's an Arminian. Right? You dismiss people on the basis of whether or not they line up with their theological passion, but you've missed the force of broader Christian character. Do you dismiss counselors who don't hold your particular view? And thirdly, have you become unchallengeable? When somebody brings up an objection, do you get angry? I mean, remember how the Pharisees responded? Jesus points out some objections, and they want to kill him. They have an emotional response. They're unwilling to be challenged is personal for them. So how do you regulate this? Well, once again, here's three um, admonitions. Number one, allow Scripture to contour your conviction. Allow Scripture to contour your conviction. If someone challenges your passion with a passage of Scripture... You can either try to explain it away, clearly Paul must have been kidding or being sarcastic, or I can't mean this because it doesn't line up with my theological passion. There's nothing wrong with just saying, you know what, I need to think about that, right? Isn't that what Jesus did? The Pharisees had a rigid understanding of what can and can't be done on the Sabbath, and Jesus points to an exception in Scripture. Well, have you considered this? Now, instead of the Pharisees saying, you know what, you bring up a good point, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe the rabbis might have been wrong. Maybe the tradition doesn't get it right. Maybe I need to reevaluate what I believe in light of Scripture. So, number one, allow Scripture to contour your conviction. Three, or sorry, secondly, realize that the problem may be the strength of your conviction. Realize that your problem may be the strength of your conviction. 
in the blogosphere right now, there's all kinds of debate about theology proper and the doctrine of God and things like eternal subordination and divine impassibility and the eternality of God and the aseity of God. All those things are being brought up, and, and I'm not going to bore you with the details. But I think sometimes people justify the urgency of all of these doctrines by saying if you get the doctrine of God wrong, then you are worshiping a different God, which means that you're worshiping an idol, which means that you're a heretic and not a Christian. So if you have a different understanding of eternal subordination, be careful, Christian, you might be worshiping an idol. Now, here's the deal with that. There's no real clear teaching on that. You have the headlights of Scripture, and then you have this realm beyond the headlights of Scripture. And when you start making dogmatic pronouncements about stuff beyond the headlights of Scripture, um, you can lead to all kinds of division. If you can't show where something is, chapter and verse, you need to turn down the level of dogmatism. Now, there are some things that the Bible is very clear about. The sexual ethic, very clear. Divinity of Jesus, very clear. The plan of salvation, very clear. The, the reality of hell, very clear. Because you can actually point to a passage and say, that's what it teaches. But when you get into this realm of theological speculation, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's problem solving. It's trying to figure out how to put these things together. There's a place where maybe turn down the dogmatism and it's okay to say, you know what, I'm 100% sure of these doctrines, but I'm 80% sure of this. Like, I believe in a pre-trib rapture. I believe it will happen before the tribulation. But I don't believe that with the same certainty as I believe, with the, as I believe in the sexual ethic or the exclusivity of the gospel. Does that make sense? Therefore, I'm not going to call somebody a heretic if they disagree with me on that issue, because a lot of it is done by inference and theological extrapolation. So realize that the problem may be the strength of your conviction. And then thirdly, allow the law of love to govern your conviction. When dialoguing about your conviction, don't make it your identity. Don't make it you being right on this issue as the marker of whether or not you are a faithful Christian or a marker that they are a faithful Christian. All of your discussion and advocacy of this conviction and passion needs to be contoured by the greatest commandments. And you know them. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law of the prophets. If your advocacy of this doctrine is turning you into a jerk and you are breaking these greater laws in your advocacy of it, you need to reevaluate how you're going about this, right? That your passion is not to win an argument, right? That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to win the argument. Instead of discover truth, instead of understanding how I might serve God and how might this strengthen everybody's conviction to worship Jesus Christ, because that's the forest, that's the big picture. All of these little trees point to the greater picture of the lordship and the glory of Jesus Christ. 
they challenge us to give us him more love and more honor. And, and when we have these discussions, the goal can't be to win the argument for our glory, but to win the soul for their glory so that Jesus is glorified. He is the greater point. And that needs to contour all of our discussions about homeschooling versus public school, about vaccines and COVID policy, our relationship with the government, theological conundrums and how you reconcile different passages of scripture. All of that has to be contoured by the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love his people. So I don't want to dampen anybody's conviction. A lot of these things are good. They are right. It's good that you're advocating and striving for them. You just have to be careful, Christian, that you do not miss the forest for the trees, right? Jesus is the point of all of it. Conformity to Christ is the point of all of it. Make sure you get that right before you advocate for other things. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful to come here and to sit under your teaching. And, and Lord, just seeing how Jesus dealt with um, aberrant theology, pointed to the greater glory of you, the intent of the law, and the need to keep a right perspective on the heart of it. I pray that as a church that we will be passionate about what we believe, but our passions will drive us to the truth and drive us to um, seeking you in all, every and all things. Lord, I pray that our church will be united around a common commitment to you and your glory and a commitment to your son. And Lord, for anybody who's on the outside looking in, perhaps you know, they're looking at this as an internal discussion, I pray that they will be drawn by just the wisdom of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, and that you might even lead them to pursue Jesus in some way, that they might understand the reality of the gospel, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that Jesus provided himself as a perfect substitute for us and that by trusting in him, we might have eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.